Hello, welcome to Mayor Talks, conversations about responsible investing, a podcast from Mayor Capital. This edition features the Mayor Capital Q&A from January the 25th, 2021. The call covers the implications of Joe Biden's presidential win for tackling climate change and the possible impact on the tech giants. And we also discuss stock valuations in the US, Europe and beyond. Mayor Capital Advisors Limited is an appointed representative of Privium Fund Management UK Limited, which is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority in the United Kingdom. The investment services of Mayor are only available to professional clients and eligible counterparties for the purposes of the FCA's rules. They are not available to retail clients. Past performance does not predict future results and the capital value of investments and the income generated can fluctuate. Just like to say hello to everyone and welcome you to the second in the series of these quarterly Q&As from Mayor. Hopefully you would have received the annual investor letter and fact sheets. We're switching from broadcast mode to listening mode and answering the questions that have come in over recent days and any questions that those on the call now would like to submit live. Uh, we have received some uh, some questions already and we'll get to those in a second. Thank you very much to uh, to those that have sent them in. Uh, if we have any questions that cover broadly the same topics, I'll try and condense them and paraphrase them when I put them to Aziz and Albury. But if you feel like your question hasn't been addressed directly, feel free to uh, contact any one of the team at the, on the conclusion of the, of the call. If you would like to ask some questions, you can do so in the meeting Q&A, which you should be able to see within the uh, chat function of the meeting. Uh, so with that, let's get started. And uh, we're going to start off with some questions that were uh, pre-submitted. The first of which says that uh, Citibank shows its euphoria index is off the charts. Can the team address the claims that the market is now driven by mania as opposed to economic fundamentals? I'll just switch to as he's live on the screen as he is now. Hi. Hi, everyone. Uh... Well, I, I think in my letter, uh, I talked about precisely that point. And, and the way I see it is it's very hard to gauge sentiment. Uh, it's not something that you can measure accurately. What you can, what you can look for is evidence of, of certain kinds of behaviors becoming more common. Uh, behaviors that one could call irrational, uh, but in any way kind of less driven by fundamentals. Uh, of the companies that are invested in. And I would say that, uh, like I said in, in my recent letter, whether it's about some of the stuff that's happening in cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, uh, the TikTok investment movement slash Robinhood, uh, a lot of this behavior strikes me as uh, not in line with fundamentals. I mean, we could argue whether this is called irrational or not. One could debate that, but at least... I think they are disconnected from fundamentals. So there is evidence of that in, in many parts of, of the, uh, the market. Uh, for the most part, though, no, though not exclusively, uh, this does seem to be, at least at the extreme, a U.S. phenomenon. Uh, and it does seem to be concentrated mostly in technology names and the areas that are to the periphery of it. Uh, unfortunately, when when those things happen, they do tend to spill over sometimes. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of it in pricing, for example, in the majority of the things that I've seen in the U.S. market. Uh, 
However, as I mentioned in the letter, because some of the tech names have become such a big weight in the index, even though as a percentage of the number of listed companies may be concentrated in a, in, in a small subset of the market, it could still have an impact on U.S. indices, uh, whether it's the uh, NASDAQ, which is very heavy on, on such names, but also on the S&P 500, which now has a significant tech exposure. Uh, and I would expect that this behavior uh, would lead to diminishing returns in the future. Uh, so even if the rest of the S&P, which I think is probably uh, elevated but not uh, completely disconnected from reality, uh, because of the weight of uh, this that part of the market and in, in tech being such a big part of the index, uh, I, I still do expect that it would become a drag on the performance uh, of the S&P 500. Uh, and if you compare and contrast the S&P to the to other developed markets, for example, or even emerging markets, uh, but at least in the areas where we invest in developed markets, you do see a profound difference uh, in valuation and in behavior between uh, U.S. stocks and, and the rest of, of the developed uh, market. I'm not saying the rest of the, the, rest of the market is uh, exceptionally cheap. Uh, I think that was the case last year, uh, which I wrote about and we talked to you about it. But it doesn't strike me as in the same uh, uh, category of whether elevated or, or bubble territory as you'd see in some of those U.S. names. Uh, now, as, as I mentioned in the letter, it's very hard to guess the timing uh, of when these things get corrected. Uh, I believe that ultimately they do get corrected, and I think those TikTok investors will be disappointed, uh, and they could drag down uh, other big tech names with them. Uh, but I cannot tell you when that's going to happen. And I think the risk is, because it's very hard to time uh, these things, that a lot of people kind of stick around in these big tech names for too long. Uh, and there's a, a, a Buffett metaphor of this when everybody's dancing and midnight comes around and you look at the clock and it's got no hands. Uh, it's very hard to, to know when to get out. And so for people like us who refuse to participate in these kinds uh, of markets, uh, the risk is that we just lose on this opportunity to, uh, to be cool for a while, uh, you could say. And, uh, and, and as we've always repeated, our, our motto remains uh, no FOMO. So there's no fear of missing out. Uh, we're happy to see others make money doing silly things uh, when we'll just sit on the sidelines and not participate. Uh, we don't really, not really get that itch. I don't know, Aubrey, if you have anything to add here. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess there are a few things that uh, you know, the most important thing to say, though, is that the euphoria is very much focused in specific sectors and specific stocks. You know, it's, this is not something that's widespread. I mean, so as a rule of thumb, we like to look for businesses that trade on you know, free cash flow yield of, let's say, five and above. Well, you know, out of the 4,000 stocks in Western Europe and North America, if you strip out you know, a few sectors like defense, banks and such, 
with a market cap of over a billion, there are 4,000 stocks. 1,000 have a free cash flow yield of greater than 5%. So there is still value out there. You know, it's, it's not like the whole market is this, uh, you know, frothy, you know, uh, Tesla-esque um, monstrosity. That there are there is value out there. There are opportunities out there. They're just not in the places that everybody's talking about at the moment. And you know, that that's where we're looking. And yes, it's harder because, you know, some of these uh, businesses are inexpensive for a very good reason, uh, but some are not. Uh, so. Um, Yes, there is euphoria, but it's not something that I think we have to worry about. You know, I think back to, you know, sort of sports when I was, uh, you know, 15 or something, just being told, look, run your own race. You know, don't worry about what everyone else is doing. Just run your own race and play your own game. And uh, I think that's what we're doing. If I could, uh, if I could paraphrase some of the questions that we've, we've uh, had surrounding this subject we do get a lot of uh, inquiries about what we think the market is going to do or is the market um expensive but i guess it's at this point we, we should point out that the market and our portfolio is not necessarily synonymous with each other in fact uh, i think as he's wrote in the um the q3 letter the active share how different we are from the from the market is uh, approaching its record level so Aziz is that something that you know you we should emphasize a little bit more do you think when people say how what do you think about the market and what we think about the portfolio could actually be two completely different things yeah i, I mean obviously it's uh, it's it's one of the fundamentals of the way that we invest uh we are not only are we not kind of market huggers or or whatever you want to call it index huggers uh I we I have no idea what the index weight of our holdings are. Uh, we we never think of things as kind of overweight and underweight. What we've always wanted to do is buy a handful of names, twenty to thirty positions, diversified globally and across industries uh, that we think will generate good absolute returns for us over our holding period, which is five years plus. And and that's what we do. We never look at the index. Uh, I have no idea where the index is in, in any given day. Uh, we we use the index solely as a benchmark because we believe that's your opportunity cost as an investor. So we have to compare ourselves against something to so you would know whether we're doing a good job or not. Uh, but we've always been willing to appear silly for long periods of time, and I think that's the. Uh, the cost of of having a, a, an idiosyncratic portfolio that looks nothing like the market. We, uh, like Aubrey mentioned, there are four thousand names out there. We only want to find twenty or thirty, and we want to own them for many, many years. Uh, our portfolio has and will continue to look very different than the index, and we don't care if that's the issue. I mean, I, th I think a lot of the people are a bit obsessed about kind of trying to stay close to the index. And and to be fair to them, if you we're measuring yourself against a benchmark over a month, a quarter, or a year. That is a rational thing to do, but that's not how we operate, and uh, and it's not the kind of investors that we want to have. And and our job is, like I said, to make good absolute returns over the long term by buying a portfolio that, by definition, to do better than the benchmark has to look significantly different than the benchmark. I think. 
Yeah, that's that's very, that's very clear. Uh, I, I, I don't think we've got any other questions on this particular topic, so we will move on to uh, to our next question, which is, with the uncertainties around the changing digital and social media regulations in terms of power, privacy, and issues such as those, does the fund intend to avoid large tech funds, brackets, Alphabet, Twitter, etc.? So we never kind of take a, a big macro view and then try to see where our ideas fit. Uh, we're always trying to figure out from the bottoms up what is a good investment opportunity uh, for the long term for our investors. And, uh, and that does mean that sometimes the opportunity will be, as, as was the case at some point in the past, where uh, some tech names did look very attractive and we didn't think that the market appreciated the quality of these businesses. And so at some point in the past, we owned Alphabet and Microsoft and, and Apple and, uh, and that was the right thing to do because the valuation is attractive and the future relative to the valuation is underappreciated. Uh, but it's all about, I think, the thing about investing is that it's, it's not enough to know what's going to happen in the future, assuming that you can, but it's not enough to even guess uh, approximately correctly what the future is going to be. But also, it needs to be a guess that not everyone else believes, so that it's not priced into uh, the stocks that you buy. Uh, and in the case of, of the tech names right now, I think for the majority of them, uh, people are so excited about the future, they've elevated the prices to levels that, in, in our opinion, is just makes no sense, at least for someone who wants to be conservative in their assumptions like we do. And uh, and that means that we'll go and find ideas elsewhere. Uh, so, so for us, it's always relative to valuation. Uh, we want to buy things that do well over time, but we don't want to overpay for them. And I, I think that's where kind of you have to find uh, that line as, as an investor between overpaying for what you think is going to happen. Uh, Aubrey, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean, look, you know, we've been aware of the regulatory risk surrounding big tech now for four or five years. I mean, ever since I joined, I remember we, we were discussing, you know, the regulatory issue because, you know, there are a lot of natural monopolies that have grown uh, grown here, you know, Google is a natural monopoly, uh, and that with it comes special responsibilities. And if you breach them, then there are repercussions. Um, I mean, you know, competition law is what I did my master's in, so you know, naturally, it's something that's uh, that I do think about. But you know, with Google, you sort of go, okay, well, what, what's the worst case scenario, and how do we price for that? How how can we factor that into our model? Um, what are the risks? And how do we factor it in? And with you know Alphabet, we're relatively sanguine uh, about uh, the future. And look, you know, one of the things that people talk about is, well, what if Alphabet were broken up? And well, okay, what if it were the, you know, actually if it were broken up, maybe you would unlock a huge amount of value. Um, you know, uh, with other stocks, Twitter, you know, uh, Facebook, there are other reasons that. You know, we don't invest in them, but yes, and given that we don't own Twitter or haven't really looked at it for quite a while, 
we haven't factored in what is the you know what is the downside to the uh, this new regulatory risk surrounding uh, privacy and you know, everything sort of whole furore that we've had uh, recently and freedom of speech um, if it got to valuations that we thought attractive then we'd start assessing that risk okay thank you very much um one of the questions that we uh, we fielded last time around is surrounding the impact of the U.S. presidential elections. We all know the result now. Joe Biden is safely ensconced in, in the White House. And we really said this doesn't have that much of an impact, although in the first day of, uh, of President Biden's um, tenure, he signed a number of executive orders, one of which was to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, regardless of what Ted Cruz may think, that is a, a global um, energy, uh, climate change, green, sustainable uh, initiative. So with the Democrats taking the lead in the US, does this present opportunities for green and sustainable energy investment? Um, I know that we, uh, we already have uh, one green uh, or renewable energy producer um, in the portfolio. Is, is that likely to continue? So I think the when we say politics don't matter, I think we are we don't mean that they don't matter. Uh, when we say that what we actually are saying is we don't think we can forecast what's going to happen in a way that's different that we can actually make a decision on. Uh, so they don't matter to the investment process. They do matter to real life. Uh, is, 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 I think, the real kind of nuanced message here. And, uh, but usually you can't predict it. And so as an investor, you just cannot use it or use those predictions in order to make decisions. Obviously, after the fact, once you have a different reality, then you can think about it a little bit differently. Uh, my view on uh, basically renewable energy and kind of just everything that we need to do to save the environment and, and and slow down, hopefully reverse the climate crisis that we find ourselves in right now, is luckily a lot of these technologies are now economically viable. And so in spite of the Trump administration's efforts to slow down the insulation of wind, for example, and renewables in general, we know that most years during the Trump administration, uh, on a net basis, new electric uh, capacity generate, uh, generation in the U.S. has been in renewables. Uh, and the reason that is the case is that there are many parts of the United States where uh, wind is the cheapest source of energy. And that is becoming the case in many places around the world. Uh, it's happening also with solar in many places in the world. And so I'm most optimistic uh, because the economic support, the move towards renewable energy sources. And before someone jumps and says, well, you can go all renewable and all of that. And just the fact that we can make a big dent in electric generation by using renewables going forward, I think in of itself is a huge 
uh, it's just a game changer compared to where the technology and the economics of of, of that were 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, so that gives me optimism. There, are, There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I mentioned on the last q and I think, that a really, one of the things that to me uh, made me just really want a Biden win over Trump, there's just one thing, it is, it is the, the, the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, the U.S. me joining it. Because this, the world cannot fix this without everyone working together on it. And not having the U.S., uh, which is the second largest uh, polluter in the agreement, would have really just made it very difficult, if not impossible, for us to do that. And so having the, uh, the Biden administration come back and immediately rejoin is a huge relief. Uh, and I do see it say a relief because... To be honest, I have kids, and, and, and I want a future for them that is not horrible because we've made stupid, greedy decisions for short-term gains that our children and grandchildren will pay for. Uh, and so purely from a selfish point of view, I do want a better environment. Uh, Aubrey, this is, uh, this is an area where we talk a lot about, and, and you've done a lot of work. Do you have anything to add? Uh, I mean, not a huge amount. The only thing you know, I might say is that um, before Trump uh, was elected president, the USA had planned to, I think, more, more than double uh, the wind capacity. Uh, I think the increase was something in the line of uh, 120, 150%. And, you know, whilst they didn't stop building turbines during Trump's tenure, he did, as you say, um, well... You know, I, I remember watching him on television saying that uh, they might cause cancer. Um, I, I mean, what possessed him to think that, I don't know. But um, <laughs> I, I can assure you, wind turbines do not uh, cause cancer. Uh, but so, so I think that the point is the original plan will now hold. And if you double capacity in America over the next five years, then you are doubling or tripling spending uh, in the next five years. And... Yeah, that is only going to be good. And and then you know, look at what Biden has done in terms of the uh, stimulus bill. Um, you know, it's 1.8 trillion. You know, you've, I mean, 2009 they oversaw 900 billion of stimulus. 1.8 trillion is just such a big number. You know, and when you know a big part of that is going to be directed towards green initiatives. Uh, yeah, there is going to be a fairly explosive uh, result. Now, whether we can capture any additional uh, opportunities from that, I don't know, because a lot of these stocks have become, they're not as cheap as they were last year. You know, people know this. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, benefit from it. Maybe if there's a sell-off or if we find other un uncovered opportunities. But at the moment, uh, you know, we're happy with uh, the one that we have. Yeah, I think this is a good, this is a good point to tie in with a previous question where we were investing in investors couple of years ago when people were not excited about uh, renewable energy, or at least not as much as they are now. So the gap between expectations and, and reality uh, was, was big. And now, arguably, it's, it's closed. Uh, so it's, there's not as much uh, upside from investing in green tech today. Uh, there, there's probably some in some areas. 
but there's not as much upside as uh, a few years ago when the sector wasn't uh, being viewed with, uh, with as, and as much excitement as today. Okay, um, moving on then to uh, some allocation questions. Uh, is the fund targeting an increase in alloca allocations to Asia given the potential healthier recovery? Well, I'll just answer this the same way I always answer this. We, we do not start with a top-down thesis and then try to find ideas in any geography or industry. Uh, we look for opportunities around the world that we think are going to do better over the next five-plus years. Uh, so even short-term uh, recovery factors don't necessarily factor into it in so much as unless it impacts valuation. Uh, and then we'll go and, and, and find these ideas around the world. And if they fit our portfolio, if they fit our strict quality guidelines, and if they're available at a price that we think is attractive, then we'll buy them. And uh, so again, it's, it's not just about what's going to happen in terms of recovery, uh, but also what is in the price. Uh, I do want to say that Asian and European stocks do look much more reasonably priced than U.S. stocks these days. But... Uh, that's kind of like an afterthought. It's not something that's part of our process where that drives us to uh, do something differently in the portfolio. Okay. Um, well, we're moving on now to what is the uh, last question that we've had submitted during the call. Uh, just a reminder, if you do want to um, ask a question, please use the Q&A uh, function. Uh, we, don't, we don't seek to make the most out of this time. So if there aren't any questions, this, this will be the last one. And it's uh, it's about positioning of the fund. Uh, what's the current position of the fund by geography uh, and v value versus growth and cyclical v non-cyclical and cash? Hmm. It's in the last quarterly letter, I can tell you that. Uh, let, me, let me look it up so I don't make up numbers. Uh, let's see. It hasn't changed by m much since uh, December 31st, I can tell you that. And uh, <clears throat> so in terms of geography, we are now 40, just under 42% Europe, 39% North America, 6% uh, in Asia, and about 13% in cash. And uh, the top five industry groups are uh, capital goods, 15, six, almost 16%, media and entertainment, 12%, software and services, 11.8%, household and personal products, 10%, and pharmaceuticals at 8%. Uh, most of what we own is non-cyclical, though, again, some of those capital good names are cyclical. Uh, but probably, and I would say about uh, just over a tenth percent is probably cyclical in nature. Uh, we own the home builders, which is part of the capital goods. Uh, Vestas, which we believe is in a secular growth rate over very long periods of time, will still appear cyclical over the short term. Uh, and then some things that look cyclical are less cyclical on a profitability basis, such as Brentag, which uh, chemical distribution, 
has this nice feature where because of the pass on, uh, because they pass on pricing, the, the profit is a lot more stable than the top line. Uh, so margins are counter cyclical and cannabis makes it overall a lot less cyclical than uh, the products that they sell. Uh, so yeah, that's the answer to that. If, uh, the, we, we like to think a lot more about kind of the underlying uh, ownership, which we report in Checkar annual letter, we report every quarter. We kind of look through the revenues and the sources of revenue. We want to make sure those are much more diversified globally. Kind of on a fundamental level, I've always believed that that's a much better way to uh, kind of understand your economic exposure as opposed to where a company uh, may be based or listed. Okay. Uh, that is the uh, last question. So, uh, so question that, that just came in, Mark looks like. Oh uh, yes, it's. Ah uh, uh, yes, one one that just crept under the uh, under the radar there. Uh, are you still holding Nordstrom, and what is your view on it? Yeah. So our view on Nordstrom uh, hasn't materially changed. Uh, our thesis holding it was that it was going to be a category uh, killer and that they've just gotten uh, online selling a lot better uh, than their competitors. Uh, the definition of competitor, I think, has changed over time, uh, but we still think that they continue to capture market share there. Uh, I think the pandemic uh, has been an accelerator of moving online, and that is both an opportunity and a threat, I believe, uh, to Nordstrom. It's an opportunity because this now gives them enough, uh, puts them in a position where they can take advantage of their investments and their being ahead of their competitors in that area. Uh, it could potentially also be a threat uh, because during the pandemic, you've anyone who is kind of on the fringe uh, and not sure whether they're going to invest in online or not have invested massively online. Uh, the stock has, has, is now ahead of where it was uh, at the peak last year. So it's fully recovered to kind of pre-pandemic levels. Uh, and uh, we did buy a little bit when it was much lower. But it's, it was one of the ones that at, at the peak of kind of March, April, uh, we didn't buy a lot. We just bought a little bit because I think... At that point in time, uh, it really could have gone either way. We, uh, it's, it's very easy in hindsight to sit and think, that, oh, I should have been more aggressive in, in my buying by, back in March and April. And I think what we at the time, probably what we did, people thought we were too aggressive. And, and now we look back and say, oh, actually, oh, now that we know what happened, we should have been more aggressive. But I think that's just, for lack of uh, a better word, hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, I think the uh, things could have gone horribly bad, not just for Nordstrom, for, for, for big parts of the economy uh, in the second quarter of last year. Uh, but governments and central banks intervened, and I think things turned out much better than our, our worst fears. Uh, and so that's why you see the stock kind of doing this massive recovery, and it's been it's been a real. Uh, a contributor to performance. So it was a drag in 2020, but it's been a contributor this year, uh, but also towards the last few months of, of uh, 2020 as it 
as things kind of turn around. I think uh, the jury is still out uh, on, on the whole sector uh, because we don't know uh, what the kind of post-pandemic behavior is going to be. Uh, as I wrote in my last letter, I think in some aspects, people, I think, are overestimating what's going to stick. Uh, but we cannot deny that a lot of things have changed and, and will be different going forward. Uh, and, 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 and whether it's what kind of products that people buy, how much they spend at the office, but also what kind of channel that they use and whether this channel is still relevant in, in this kind of post-pandemic uh, environment, uh, both in the short term, but also potentially in the long term over many years. Uh, so I, I, I cannot claim that I am certain about what's going to happen. Uh, I am definitely less confident about Nordstrom's future than I was a couple of years ago, but I'm more confident that I was, sorry, less confident than I was in April, but more confident, more confident than I was at the, uh, the depth of kind of uh, the March-April decline where there was a chance it really could have gone bust, I think, as would have a lot of companies. Uh, had uh, the Federal Reserve and, uh, and governments not intervened. Okay, um, one more question that has come in. We we answered a question which was more industry related uh, regarding uh, the new Democratic uh, administration in the US and social media and digital more generally. This one's more specific about Alphabet, one of Mayor's holdings. Are you worried about the Democrats cracking down on tech companies? Well, I, th I think they will, and I think to a great degree they should. Uh, I think it's not healthy for the economy to have anyone can have too much power. Uh, I do think that some of these companies are worse than others. Uh, and I do think that some of them, in, in the degree of their over-earning, uh, are potentially at higher risk uh, than others. And then the final factor that I think matters is how much is in the price. And what we, we've been talking about this subject about Alphabet for many years. Uh, and you've seen us over the years kind of add to Alphabet or reduce our exposure to Alphabet based on valuation, even though we continue to hold it for 10 years now. Uh, and that is precisely because of our view of whether the risk is priced in or not at different moments in time. Uh, so I think the risk has always been there and we expect it to happen. Uh, we do think, I think Aubrey talked about this earlier today, we do think that Alphabet is better positioned in terms of kind of how much uh, pain new regulations uh, could produce. And we also think that in terms of valuation and how much they're over-earning, they're also in a better position than many of the other names, uh, the big tech names. Uh, obviously, we could be wrong about the timing, the degree, and so forth. But as Aubrey pointed out early, uh, some of the things could actually be positive for some of these tech names. and. Uh, uh, whether it's being broken up or either some of, even some of the regulations could actually help them because a lot of what they're doing now uh, could be behavior 
that's not necessarily earning them more money, but as in, in kind of giving them a, uh, a sense of security, which is probably not healthy for the companies either uh, in terms of long term. But some of them could definitely get really, really hurt because we really think they're uh, at least big parts of their business models. We don't think Alphabet is necessarily that camp, but some of them, big parts of their business models could be massively disrupted. Uh, Aubrey, do you have anything to add? Uh, not particularly. I mean, we've you know spoken about it uh, you know at length uh, already, and just as I say, it, for, for Alphabet itself, I think the risk you know may even be to the upside. Yeah, I, I think in the past we've said that there were points uh, a couple or three, two or three years ago. I think we talked about it in the meetings and. We said, listen, if we weren't worried about this regulatory risk, purely based on valuation and the fundamentals as they stand at the moment, this would have been a much, much bigger position, a substantially bigger position. But we've always kind of cut it down every time it's gone up in price because we've always been worried about this risk. Uh, it's a real risk and uh, it needs to be priced in. Okay, well, uh, I think we're, we're a little bit over time at the moment, but as always, it's driven by uh, by our audience. So we thank you for uh, just submitting those questions. Always a very interesting uh, array of questions, and this time was no different. So if anyone, uh, if nobody else has any questions, I think we'll, uh, we'll end the call there. It just leaves me to say uh, a big thank you to everyone that's joined and to our uh, our investor base as well, that whose continued support has seen the assets under management of Maya rise through 200 million inch a month. I think we've uh, held on to that uh, given the market movements over uh, over the last few days. So we're uh, I'd like to reiterate how thrilled and honoured we are uh, regarding your continued support and trust that you you place in Maya uh, and Aziz and Aubrey as the as the investment team. Uh, this uh, this Q&A will be available on our YouTube channel uh, very shortly. We'll also be releasing it as part of our podcast series. Uh, between now and the next quarterly uh, Q&A, which will be uh, sometime at the uh, end of April, I, I suspect, uh, we we'll try and release some slightly different uh, podcast formats, whether that be uh, conversations internally with some of the investment team or maybe some external uh, contributors as well, talking about some of the more um, relevant topics of the day. But until then, uh, thank you all once again for joining. And any questions that you have that weren't addressed in this, uh, this forum, please feel free to contact me or any other member of the team. And we look forward to talking to you in the very near future. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs>